Welcome to New Chip Accelerate, the podcast for entrepreneurs by the New Chip Accelerator. I am today's host, Jonah Pfeiffer. From investing to building a company culture, this podcast strives to shine a light on the many unknowns that entrepreneurs face on a daily basis. Through talks with key personalities, Accelerate will teach you how to approach your investors, companies, customers, and roles with a fresh perspective. Today's guests are Tim Jackson, Karen Rands, and Joshua Abelos, who all discuss how to approach your business with a holistic mindset and how investing goes far beyond a checkbook. Today's first segment is from Tim Jackson's keynote talk with New Chip Accelerator Director Armando Vera Carvajal during New Chip's Q4 online demo day, an event that brings together hundreds of professionals, founders, and investors to engage with some incredibly promising startups that have gone through the New Chip Accelerator. Tim Jackson is a CEO coach, investor, entrepreneur, and tech commentator. Tim is also a general partner at Walking Ventures and has been an active early stage investor since 2000 and an advisor and non-executive director to a number of private companies. Tim also coaches a number of leading founders and CEOs who have raised rounds between one and $20 million. Quite a lot has changed, but I think quite a lot of things have stayed the same too. And perhaps the most important is that outsiders look at startup CEOs and they see them as kind of privileged people, uh, people kind of living in a bit of a bubble, people who are trying to change the world. You know, there's lots of bad stuff happening around big tech companies right now. And I think that the thing that hasn't changed is that it's really hard to run a company. It's really not easy. One thing that's very striking is that the behavior of investors in particular is much more dependent on sentiment than you might think. And if you're an entrepreneur, you might look at somebody running a fund and say, whoa, you know, they're sitting on $250 million or $500 million of money, and you know, their job is to invest it, so they should keep going, right? And yes, that's true up to a point, that venture capitalists do have a mandate to spend the money. The returns they make are surprisingly closely related to the vintage year, the year when they started. And the people that start when the cycle is at the bottom and sell when the cycle is at the top tend to do a lot better than those who start when the cycle is at the top. But it's also important to be aware that VCs are kind of people too, and they have vulnerabilities and fears as well. And one of the things that's striking is that when the market is just going up, 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 and everybody's incredibly optimistic, then you get deals done that are on very company-favorable terms. You know, you get uncapped you get um, uncapped convertibles in which somebody's paying now uh, for the right to invest at a discount uh, on an offer price that will be set in a year or two's time. And one of the things that happens when markets turn, and I'm not just talking about the hiccup, the 30% retraction that happened earlier this year, I'm talking about a decisive change from a bull market to a bear market. When markets turn, then very often the balance of power between investors and entrepreneurs changes. And the result is that it's often the, the, the top quartile or the top half of companies that get invested and the bottom half will not succeed in get, getting funding anyway. Um, but also the terms become a little more investor friendly and the expectations in terms of entrepreneur behavior become a little bit more rigorous. Um, and these things will be new to many people who are under the age of 30. But if you've seen it go round a couple of times before, then you'll know that this is going to happen. And what that means is that even when VCs are saying, yep, we're all continuing on just like we were, 
we're as excited about tech as we ever were. Yes, that's true. That absolutely makes sense. And I too, I'm a big believer that tech will continue to change the world. Despite that, I think you should expect to see some significant differences in terms. Shifting this a little bit, um, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about coaching because you are, you're a prominent CEO coach. And an interesting fact here is that you're known for, for taking startup founders on walks in Hyde Park in London as part of the, the pitch process for your fund. Um, it's interestingly so, you never ask anything about business and revaluation. Instead, you focus just on getting to know the entrepreneur as a, a person. Now, to this point, you're, like I said, you're a highly regarded CEO coach. So what prompted you to start coaching CEOs? Well, it's interesting, actually, that you mentioned walking in the park because um, the reason that I started doing that was partly just because I liked it, but also because um, I think that if you look at the process that most VCs go through in terms of, of decision-making, um, you know, the decision is mostly about three things. It's about the people, the product, and the plan. And yet, if you visualize the typical meeting that you know, a company pitching at a demo day will have when they're following up uh, with a possible investor, they'll be showing the product and they'll be talking about the plan. And they'll have a slide deck and they'll typically be in a conference room. And somewhere on slide 17 or whatever, uh, there'll be a slide headed you know, team and it will have 10 words about each of the people and little photos of them. And it struck me that since what I've learned as an investor from kind of 50, investments in different portfolio companies is that actually the people are much more important than either the product today or what the plan is in the future in determining the outcome. And that's not surprising if you think about it because a product can typically be changed in, in three months and a plan can be changed in a weekend, but the people are not so easily changed. Um, it struck me that it made much more sense as an investor to, as it were, front end the due diligence process by trying to learn more about the people. And in a way, I think that chimed with some conversations that I'd been having with later stage CEOs who had backed companies that we had seeded first um, about the kind of success factors in many businesses. And that actually it's very often the case that one of the biggest obstacles to success of a given company is the issue of whether the CEO can scale, can grow as fast as the company can. And after having looked through our portfolio, I came to the conclusion that there's a number of skills going across macro to medium to micro in terms of whether it's kind of big picture stuff or small detail, and whether it's stuff about you or about your team or about the people who report to you or about the company as a whole, which actually, if you're, if you're building the airplane in mid-flight, as the analogy goes, it's quite hard to do. And... One of the things I'd learned was that for CEOs, having someone that, that they can have a confidential and detailed conversation with about the challenges they're facing is much rarer than you might think. And that's partly because there's a lot of people who, who as it were, define themselves as coaches, but their key qualification in the area um, is a PhD in psychology, which is fantastic. That's great for kind of helping you feel good and helping restore your self-esteem and so on. But actually, startups are different from many other kinds of companies. And being a CEO is a different role from many other, from many other job titles. And I think it's hugely valuable um, if, you're a, if, if you're running a startup as a CEO to be talking to somebody who really knows what it's like to be there and who isn't going to have unrealistic expectations about what you ought to be able to achieve. 
you know, the best VCs will always say, call me anytime. Anytime you've got a problem, just let me know. Remember, we've signed the investment agreement. We've given you the money. We can't take the money back except unless a, a very short list of really terrible things happens. In all other circumstances, we are in the same boat as you. So you can be fully open with us. That's all true. And it's said in good faith. But it's also important to realize that the best CEOs know that every conversation they have with an investor is an investor relations conversation. And so if you call up your biggest investor in tears at 10 o'clock on a Friday night and say, I don't think I can carry on with this. Maybe I wasn't cut out to do this job. Then what you can hope for is that they'll be sympathetic and they'll be a good listening ear and they'll give you some good input. But they cannot forget what you've said. And you cannot unsay those words. And consequently, when you come back again four weeks later and say, yay, we're going to build this into a $10 billion company, um, they will at the back of their minds know that relatively recently you weren't so sure. And I think that's why, it, that's why often the best CEOs realize that it's good to take input and advice and views from investors, but it's not necessarily the right thing to open up to them your greatest fears, your greatest worries, your greatest weaknesses, the dumbest things you've ever done. Pretty much all the CEOs I know work very hard. The problem is not that they are leaving work early and goofing off and simply not putting in the effort. Those people tend to get weeded out pretty early on. The issue is that they may be devoting huge amounts of effort to things that aren't the right things. And um, it's a little bit like, you know, the, the, the comparison between the two people, one of whom climbs Mount Everest and the other one simply takes a cab to the center of town and steps into a building and presses the elevator button to get to the top floor. If you can find shortcuts, if you can find things that will get you to your destination faster with less work, allowing you to concentrate on what's really important, that can make a huge difference. Yeah, no, I, I see that quite often as well, where the passion's always there. And, and I fully agree that CEOs who see entrepreneurship as a hobby or something that they can do on the side or not put in as much effort, eventually sooner rather than later do get weeded out just because of the circumstances that surround that roller coaster that is entrepreneurship. Um, so very, very interesting. How do you, what are your thoughts on how to refocus someone? Because I see this quite often where there's a lot of passion. There's a lot of focus on several key initiatives in any given startup. And it's almost like the founders are oftentimes just very set in their ways. How can an investor um, help refocus that, that entrepreneur to, to make the biggest impact? Well, it's pretty hard for the investors to do it because, of course, by the time the founders get to a board meeting and they've prepared a board pack, the, the reality of the chaos inside the business can be repackaged as something that looks much more thoughtful and much more organized than it really is. But if you're not in a context where you're around a boardroom table and the CEO is under pressure to look like everything's just fine, I think that, that attaining focus is something that, that actually takes a number of steps. So one of them is simply a brain dump of everything that's on your mind and all the tasks that you're trying to accomplish. And you know, that's something that was pioneered 20 years ago by Dave Allen in his book, Getting Things Done. Just make sure that you don't have the stress of thinking, oh, heavens, there's a whole load of stuff I need to do, but I can't remember what it is. And so simply having that list is hugely valuable. Then perhaps um, it's also important to identify what are the things that really have to be done by you 
And if you think, for example, about Tim Ferriss's advice in his book, The, the, the Four-Hour Workweek, where he talks about, you know, delegate, automate, eliminate, um, there's a lot of things that people end up doing themselves that actually they need not necessarily do. Right. And it's quite important to take those out of the mix um, as your next step. And then perhaps the third step is to look at the individual big projects that you're thinking about and try and identify which of those going to have the, is going to have the biggest result, the biggest effect on the outcome, and trying to think through um, how you can juggle your time allocation between those things. If there's one thing that will account for 80% of the outcome of the entire project you're working on, and yet you're spending only 5% of your time on it, that can be quite hard and not easy to succeed at. Now, the paradox is that the way I describe it makes it sound incredibly obvious. And yet, what I found is that even the smartest CEOs find it very, very hard to do this in dialogue by themselves. And it's much easier if you've got somebody to whom you can lay out everything and then say, so where am I? And you're not looking for somebody to tell you the answers. You're looking for somebody to ask you good prompting questions that will help you get there by yourself. And, you know, good luck trying to do that with a, with a board member, because if you, as it were, reveal your full long list of ideas and projects and things you're thinking about, then your board member is likely to come away with a feeling that you suffer from a fatal and irreparable lack of focus. But, you know, the big picture is that there's a lot of bumps on the way of being an entrepreneur. There's a lot of difficulties in building a business. But getting to a demo day, talking to investors, coming to agreements and getting to build stuff, it's fantastic. It's incredibly exciting. And we're all deeply privileged to be doing it. Now we move to an interview between New Chips Laurie Cerconi and Karen Rands, a nationally recognized expert on angel investing and a recent guest at the Q4 online demo day. She has over 20 years experience in coaching entrepreneurs and working with investors to speak about compassionate capitalism and the economic impact of entrepreneur investor ecosystems. She started the compassionate capitalist movement to fund innovation, create jobs and create wealth for the entrepreneurs and investors. Karen wrote the best-selling book, Inside Secrets to Angel Investing, on how to invest in entrepreneurs so that people can create wealth and share in the success of entrepreneurs without all the risks. Hi, everyone. Um, we're here with Karen Rands, who's the author of the best-selling book, Inside Secrets to Angel Investing. And she's also the founder of the capitalist uh, uh, Compassion Capitalist Movement. And uh, so excited to have Karen with us today. Um, um, get started. And um, Karen, can you give us a little bit um, of uh, just a little bit into your background and what uh, led you to write the book? Uh, what le led you to start the Compassion Capitalist Movement? Okay, sure. Thank you, Lori. It's been, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about this with you and share some of my insights because this is a real passion of mine. And uh, my goal sort of, you know, just go right, jump to the end and then I'll come back and how that happened is I, the Compassion Capitalist Movement is intended to bring net new capital into the marketplace so that and people will, of all income levels that have liquidity and ability to, you know, make investments. They're, they're in charge of their wealth creation strategy and to add investing in entrepreneurs to their, their 
portfolio the same way that they think about adding real estate or think about stocks. And once they get to the point where they're trying to be proactive about creating wealth, one of the assets that they need to have in their portfolio, and everybody really in this day and age could have some investment in entrepreneurs in their portfolio. And so that's what the compassionate capitalist movement is. The definition of a compassionate capitalist is somebody you invest time, knowledge, resources, and money into entrepreneur endeavors to bring innovation to the market, create jobs, and create wealth. And uh, I, I expanded that after I came out with the book because I realized there's so many people that dream of being an entrepreneur. Um, they think about someday we're doing it, particularly right now as we go through another economic flux. You know, people think, oh, so now is the time to start a business. What should I do? I don't know what my future is. And so, if you, so the idea is that, you know, the number one way to create wealth is to be a successful entrepreneur. Well, lo and behold, which I didn't know until I got involved in angel investing 20 plus years ago and um, really came to understand with the crowdfunding movement and the Jobs Act is that the second way to create wealth is to be an investor in one of those successful entrepreneurs. And the good news about being investors in entrepreneurs is that you can put your money into many different entrepreneurs in different industries and in different types of business, different stages of business and have its own diversification strategy and not have all the risk of being the founder of that entrepreneur. If you don't have the, the, the fortitude, the, the just what, you know, it takes a lot to be a successful yeah. entrepreneur. And so now you can be an investor in that. And so that's really the, the whole purpose and mission behind this. And I originally started the idea of, of putting it out there as, uh, and I had renamed my podcast to be that during the, first recession in 2010 because I wanted I saw this money on the sidelines and it needed to get put back into the economy to do that to create the jobs that we needed to grow our economy and I didn't really come out as it being a movement until uh, I was I had this an epiphany on my I was working through my my dad was in the process of passing and uh, he had been a very successful entrepreneur in his own right having invented the first screen printing machine that you could print screen print multiple colors, more than two colors on. Wow. It's sort of like the God, they called him the, the grandfather or the godfather of the screen printing industry. And uh, and he um, and I was going through all of his memorabilia and looking at all this stuff and seeing other things that he had invented. And um, I realized that he didn't even start that company until he was 50 years old. And I was like, wow. Yeah. I, <laughs> it's not over for me. You know, the recession yeah. hit me kind of hard. And I was like, it's not over. If, if, if not me, then who to start this compassionate capitalist movement and the, the future of our country. I mean, entrepreneurism is such a wonderful thing. You know, the empowerment it has, and you think about everything that we have around us, somebody invented, right? You know, somebody invented that. And whether and in the, every company that we have, large, big, small, whatever, it's somebody's entrepreneur spirit that said, I have this idea. I have this thing that I can do different from somebody else. And if I put the right team together, if I get the capital right, then I, too, can leave a legacy for my family in the marketplace for other innovation to be built upon. And so it's just it's just all part of what I think that particularly in America, I mean, to me. America is sort of is our entrepreneurism is kind of in our blood, you know, right, yeah. we're, we're pioneers in all kinds of things. And uh, it's just all, you know, part and parcel to what I'm all about.
you know, kind of switch, switching gears to like um, just risks that, you know, uh, if, if you were to come to me and I'm an investor and maybe I'm in an angel group and you, and you were a startup and you were to come to me from an investor's viewpoint, what are some of the risks of early stage investing? Like what are the key risks? And then how do you mitigate those risks? Like what can you do uh, either as a startup or as an investor to try to make it less risky, take some of the risk out of it? Well, uh, so the, the, the very nature of startups is that it's a hundred percent risk, right? Yeah, so it's right. Like, and the, the, <laughs> yeah. If you're first money in, particularly in that early pre-series A or an official angel group standpoint, that's why the execs with checks will do it because they, they get involved in the company and it's kind of like they get to oversight their money. Right. And so right. by being involved, and you, you know, I know a lot of investors that it's really unique. They want to be involved and they, they are shepherding their money through the process and they have been involved and they know that they have the ability to raise the other money. Two mistakes that, com- that companies make when they're raising capital. So we just heard the good mistake. The good thing is communication, right? So the bad thing is when you don't communicate because then they all wonder, or they think you're failing. They don't just assume no. Yeah, you just think the worst, like this company must not be doing well if I don't hear from them. Yeah, exactly. So you don't, they're not going to go open up their Rolodex. They're not going to go talk to the VCs that they know if you don't communicate with them. And then when you're urgent, oh, and they think entrepreneurs do this because they think, oh, bad news. They're not going to, no, they'll, they're there to help you. They're compassionate capitalists that want to help you succeed and protect their money. Okay. They want to help you succeed. So that's the communication and lack of communication. The other thing is when you're raising capital, I have this phrase that I've um, trademarked called the WIC statement. It's wide investor cares. Okay, so it's kind of all part of your elevator pitch. But whenever you're doing a pitch presentation, the biggest mistake that I see entrepreneurs do when they get up in these, and I've coached in my mentoring, I've coached many a company on the business plan competition. And, and I'm right now I'm like pretty, I wouldn't say 100% of the companies I've worked with have won their business plan competitions, but it's up there, okay? And it's, it's why the whole thing, it's not a sales presentation on your product. It's not a feature function benefit of your product and why you need to buy it. You have to take, that's a piece of it, but you've got to get into the why an investor cares. Why an investor cares about what you're doing and how they're going to make money. They could care less about your thing and you. They want to know it's all about me. I'm the investor. I want to know how, if I put money into your company, how you, Mr. Entrepreneur, are going to make me money. Thanks so much for your time and, and all your wisdom. And, and um, yeah, I look forward to it. Thank you so much, Karen. Lastly, we have Joshua Avalos, who is a strategic angel investor and the employee number one at the Halo app, which provides a private peer-to-peer marketplace for backers to get connected with borrowers for short-term loans. He was previously a sales manager and a strategy consultant. This interview comes from his time as a panelist during this past demo day, where he and others discussed how to make an impact through socially conscious investing with New Chips' Jonathan Boyarski. Yeah, my name is Joshua Avalos. Thank you for the introduction. I am a strategic angel investor. I have two portfolio companies now. Um, and my primary investment strategy is to invest in entrepreneurs 
who turn their struggle into brilliance. Um, you know, there are a lot of problems that individuals from urban communities uh, deal with. And those who are solving those problems today are those who are most interested in, in spending time with, two in particular, uh, one called the Halo app and one called DeliverEnd. Uh, the Halo apps are private peer lending community for loans up to $1,000. Uh, I, love, I love the Halo app because I'm personally um, passionate about solving financial equality for many reasons. Uh, but more importantly, because my mom struggled with finances a lot when I was a kid, it was just a reality for us. Uh, my dad was in and out of jail. He struggled with alcoholism. Um, typically a lot of people in urban communities who are struggling financially, their families struggle with alcoholism, whether it's a mom, a dad, a brother, uh, that's just how people deal with their stress. Unfortunately, um, for those reasons, my mom was left with a single, a single income and, and had six kids to support. Um, and this is why the Halo app is, is something that I truly believe in because it provides financial equality, allows people access to capital. You know, when it's all said and done, I believe in investing in entrepreneurs who are black and brown. I was raised Chicano Latino here, like I said, out in Denver, Colorado, green chili, smothered burritos. My dad hustled burritos every, every chance he got, whether it be at a Rockies game, whether it be at a Broncos game, this is where I would learn entrepreneurism. The fact is the lack of resources has really held my family back. Um, specifically financial resources. Um, and this is why I feel passionate about providing this to the masses. Um, because if we can, you know, create a shared economy where we borrow and lend amongst each other and eliminate this, you know, inequality in credit score, um, then we can really flip uh, the economy on its head, right? And allow these people who are hanging out in the lower to middle class to start to thrive and understand financial um, equality from an entirely different perspective. So how do you guys go about measuring uh, what you're doing at the Halo app and, and sort of, you know, money saved and interest saved? You know, number one is how often a borrower becomes a backer, right? So they were in need of a loan today and tomorrow they are one of the individuals in the community who are now lending money, right? Uh, that That is a KPI that we use every single day um, to really understand the amount of impact that we're having within our community alone. Uh, but then you look at payday loans, right? And there's an average of 420% that are charged by these cash advance locations or payday loans. Um, and we can simply look at it and say, okay, well, if the average is 420%, how much money are we saving this particular community, right? Um, our go-to-market strategy is to partner with other communities, right? So it's really this fluidity that we really attempt to that we really attempt our customers to engage in from an impact point of view, right? If they can hit all three of those um, throughout their life cycle as a customer of ours, we're, we're really, really happy. And then we can really start to tell a more powerful story. I also think that another KPI that's really valuable is percent of people that pay back, which I think that yeah. you can sort of show that your process of not really using uh, a credit score, correct? You guys don't use classic credit score. You guys do interviews. Yeah. So we, we really built our own proprietary score here. It's called the halo score, but prior to even be given a, a halo score, we really want to ensure that uh, consumers participate in a human element, right? So they're going to spend time with what we call an opportunity rep here. Um, they'll engage in a human, a human centric interview, right? Where we'll then send them a private link welcome to the community. Um, and that's really the first level of trust that we engage in, right? Um, but if you remember, we partner with communities in order to promote our application. Um, so if I hear about it from New Chip, I trust New Chip. That's a whole other layer of trust added. This allows for our community today to have a 92% payback rate. 
um, which is pretty awesome, right? We are an application based off trust and we have many levels in which we build trust with consumers. Um, but for those reasons, we're, we're, you know, super proud of that payback, right? And we believe that, uh, you know, by saying, hey, look, these people that you once said were high risk, when given a chance, when given a fair product, they're not nearly as high risk as what you once considered them. This idea of lending and borrowing isn't new. The Halo app is just a place where it can happen safely uh, while feeling included and not being judged based off traditional credit. When we put money in digital marketing dollars, people immediately lumped us in to this predatory service because, you know, everyone's trying to push a loan as they say, loan shark, loan shark, loan shark is, you know, favorite term or you're a loan shark. Um, and what we really had to get people to understand is that we empathize with their struggle. Since we empathize with their struggle, you know, the product that we are going to provide for them is for their greater good. It's not to hurt them. It's not to harm them. And the best way that we knew how to do that was to stop pushing digital marketing dollars behind saying download, download, download. We started pushing digital marketing dollars behind a why video, right? Um, if you're familiar with Simon Sinek, you, you know, has this glorious book, Start With Why. Uh, we have some great, you know, peers back at home who really have you know, studied this, this type of marketing and why it's so important. Um, and that's what we knew all along. We just didn't quite understand how to share that to the general public, right? Um, so what we, you know, started to realize is, hey, we really want this to be organic. Um, so organic mean, how can we help people spread this word of mouth? And we can't do that uh, by sharing what we do or how we do it. We can only do that by sharing why we do it, right? Because if they can connect with why we do it and that empathy now exists um, on both sides, you know, between possible consumer and, and organization, then the organic marketing will, will, will spread, uh, you know, as it's supposed to. But if you can get them to understand the real powers of why and it's genuine, um, then the conversion rate can really increase, uh, you know, from the beginning and the belief and trust uh, with, you know, consumer and organization is now at an all-time high. Investors mm -hmm. assume that possibly by investing in impact that they're going to make less money. And, you know, impact to me equals savings, right? So whether we're saving the environment, whether we're saving them money, whether we're saving them time, somebody has to absorb that, right? So as an investor, if you want to invest in impact, you have to be okay with possibly absorbing those few points, right? Um, also, what, what we really try to do is we want you to create a new type of investor. And that's what impacting investing is, right? A new type of investor, these investors that are just entering the market over the course of the last 10 years. And what we want to do at the Halo app is prove that it is lucrative, if not more lucrative than maybe perhaps traditional investing like the stock market, right? If you can bring your money to the Halo app and invest in people, real people with real lives with real problems that you're helping solve, and the paybacks are similar or better, then why wouldn't you invest here instead, right? So when we look at financial equality as a whole, that's part of the problem and part of the story that we're trying to tell, right? Like, yo, we're trying to solve that. These people aren't nearly as risky. You can make as much money off them, right? Um, and still give them a fair shot and include them in everything. Uh, but also, if it's more lucrative, then maybe you should move all your dollars here. Thank you for tuning into this episode of New Chip Accelerate. If you are interested in learning more about how New Chip enables startup founders to build their business, meet other CEOs, and raise their rounds, all while retaining 100% ownership of their companies, check us out at newchip.com. We will see you soon with the next episode of New Chip Accelerate.